Hi, I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech-language pathologist, and welcome to my podcast, number 437, What is Autism? Discussing the Initial Diagnosis with Parents, brought to you by my website, Teach Me to Talk, the largest online provider of ASHA-approved CEUs for early intervention. Today we're beginning a new podcast series called Beginning Speech Therapy with Autistic Children. Now in this series we're going to be analyzing video clips of therapy sessions that I've had with toddlers and preschoolers and their families so that you can see examples and find strategies that will really work for your situation. Now this course is adapted from a course I taught all over the United States live and on DVD. Therapists, you can get CE credit for $10 in our $10 CEU program and the links about that are in the post below. Handouts of all our podcasts are available with purchase of CE credit. Now parents, we have a new feature uh, that I want to talk with you about. You can also get the PDF handouts uh, for this course as well, and that's a great way to support our work. And you can find out that link uh, if you'll look in uh, the post below. All right, so let's get started with today's course. Reliably identifying autism and the signs of autism are so important no matter what discipline you are or what setting you practice in. And this is especially important for those of us who are in pediatrics and early intervention. And why is that? It's because we are first, beyond a child's pediatrician, we are often the first professional to really interact with the family. And again, this would be on a consistent basis because we are the frontline providers in that early service provision. Now again, being first puts us in that unique position and we need to be able to recognize signs and symptoms of autism first. Now when I taught this course live, I would always ask who is directly responsible in this audience for diagnosing autism? And it didn't really matter uh, whether there was one hand or 10 hands in a group of 150 those of us who practice in this field are overwhelmingly uh, usually involved in this again not as the person who officially diagnoses it but as the person who has the initial conversation with parents and so we've got to know what we're looking for and so we're often too the resource and professional that a family may rely on most to give them the most accurate information and again because we're first in that situation so today we're going to walk through a tool that I developed back in 2016 based on the DSM-5 and again that's the official diagnostic and statistical manual that psychologists or other team members of uh, physicians use to diagnose uh, various uh, conditions or diagnoses like autism. So I developed this tool back in 2016 and it's included as your handout uh, for course 437, the first in this series and then the next part in 438. Now I've gotten great feedback back on this tool. I've modified it just only slightly for this series and again you can get it with a handout a purchase uh, below with that link below. So today we're going to be talking about section A and then in, uh, the next show in 438 we'll be moving on to section B. So we're going to take a pretty comprehensive look at how we can discuss autism with parents in those first few sessions and we're not just going with uh, <laughs> 
information that I developed, this tool is actually based on the official diagnostic criteria from DSM-5, as I mentioned before. And again, in 2022, we've had some text revisions uh, to that tool. However, it did not alter uh, the definition of autism or anything diagnostically in any kind of significant way. So we're going to be walking through uh, this definition of or this criteria for autism. So let's just start with an official diagnosis of autism. And again, you can get that on your handout. And this is how I always start conversations with parents about autism, whether they are asking me something like, do you think my child has autism? Or, hey, I've heard about autism. I'm not really sure it's applicable to my child. Let's talk about autism. What is autism? So this is how I always start it. I always say autism affects how a child interacts, how he communicates, and how he behaves. And that's so important for you as an SLP or another kind of therapist to get yourself a script so that you can go right into talking about that and so that you don't stumble all over yourselves as we often try to uh, find ourselves doing in that uh, when we're in that position with talking with parents about autism. So again, autism affects how a child interacts how he communicates and how he behaves and then you can also provide some information and again I've given that here on your handout that the symptoms are present in very early childhood and they cause significant disruptions in daily life because again it's encompassing it's not just about late talking it's not just about uh, maybe a couple of uh, restrictive re repetitive behaviors like flapping your hands or something like that autism is all-encompassing and so we have to really talk with parents about that a child's difficulties are also not due to something else or another diagnosis like a global developmental delay or something like late talking. And so we really have to be able to differentiate characteristics of autism versus other kinds of uh, speech language delay, other kinds of language disorders, other specific diagnoses. And so again, that's why it's so important that we get this information that we can accurately share with parents. Uh, with autism, there is a wide range of abilities. That's that's why we call it autism spectrum disorder. So one child with an autism diagnosis will certainly almost likely not look like uh, the, the next child you meet with an autism diagnosis. And that's really, really important for parents uh, to know and understand because sometimes they'll kind of almost pigeonhole themselves in with thinking about autism and sometimes that leads to denial where they say well my cousin's child has autism or the the child uh, of my my friend from high school and and my child is nothing like him so this diagnosis has to be incorrect for him and so we have to really help parents see that spectrum and again the spectrum affects those three big areas that we just mentioned earlier how a child interacts communicates and behaves and so we'll see different levels of interaction in autism we'll see different levels of communicative Ability, and we'll certainly see different behaviors uh, from child to child or person to person. So again, it can affect uh, learning, thinking, and problem solving of people with uh, autism can range from gifted to severely challenged. And so we could apply that with everything. Communication skills for someone diagnosed with autism can range from gifted uh, to severely challenged. And so again, you can kind of look at 
uh, uh, this every area here, the behavior piece. You'll have some children who really struggle with behavior with autism and some who won't have as many difficulties or, or the difficulties will be very, very subtle maybe uh, to the casual observer. And so again, this all translates into how a kid is going to be able to uh, grow and mature and some kids with autism will need a lot of help in their everyday lives and others were going to need less. All right, so let's go ahead and just hit the statistics or the latest statistics about autism uh, in the United States. And again, these vary from year to year. And so right now, the, the latest official government published number was back in December of 2021. And so the rate of autism is now 1 in 44. That is staggering because when I, when the rate got to 1 in 150, we were just shocked and just could not believe that autism had exploded like it has. And again, look how that number has, has just increased. Sometimes they say decrease because the number is getting lower and lower, but really it's an increase in autism. So that means about 2.3% of 8-year-olds, which is the, uh, the, the age range that the CDC uses to pinpoint uh, to get that diagnostic uh, rate, uh, so 2.3% uh, of eight-year-olds in the United States have been diagnosed with autism. In this very state-by-state, state, uh, my, my newest home state of Florida is 4.4. So that's really interesting if you want to go back and look uh, at those numbers for your own state. Now, these are not... The experts say these are not necessarily higher rates. These are just better identification. And again, that is certainly up for debate. And we are not going to talk about that on today's show. Uh, but the good news is that this is the statistic that I want to share with you. And if you work in early intervention like I do, this certainly should be as important to you as it is to me. Under half of all the children who will be diagnosed with ASD or who were diagnosed in, in the most recent, recent years or recent days, have been diagnosed by the age of three. And so that makes us an early intervention really just breathe uh, almost a sigh of relief because that's what we've worked for so long is earlier detection, earlier identification. And why is that? Because the earlier we can get to a child and the earlier we can implement these strategies, we can change the trajectory of his whole little life. And so the sooner we get that information to parents and the sooner we get that treatment program in place, we know that that child will have better outcomes. And when we first started looking at these numbers in the United States, uh, most children were diagnosed closer to four and a half. And so now we've got that down to where under uh, half, about half of those kids are under three when they get that diagnosis. So very, very good, good news for us. All right, so let's take a look now at our language development statistics. And so these are really important numbers for you as a speech language pathologist or uh, another kind of therapist who works in pediatrics or early intervention to really, really understand so that you are sure that you align your own thinking about uh, these kinds of things with what current practices or work, what current data is showing us and also so that you can share this information with other team members and certainly with parents. And so this is the one that I want to start with. 70% of children with autism will have language disorders too. Certainly language delay is a part of that with, with talking later. Now our most current information is that half of all children with autism are talking by age three, which naturally means what? 
half aren't. And so by the time a child turns three, uh, uh, about half of those children are using words, at recognizable words, functional words well enough for a parent or a physician to report, yes, he or she is talking now. By five, 66% of children with autism are talking. So we look at 66%, so what does that mean? A third of children are still nonverbal at five with autism. We used to say, that because of that critical window for language development between birth to five, if a child wasn't talking by age five, that the, the prognosis was pretty grim, that he or she is likely not to acquire language. And the good news is we no longer feel that way. We have lots of studies, and we'll talk about one, particularly in the expressive language shows that we'll get to later in this series, uh, where even if a child isn't, non non, some nonverbal children at four in this study were talking fluently and were conversational speakers by age eight. And so again, do not give up. If you are a parent watching this and your child is still nonverbal at four or five, don't give up. Keep going because research says that it can happen. And so you want to be sure that you are always thinking, always thinking about speech, always pushing for that, always letting that be your goal, even if it is a long-term goal for some children. From there, 25% of people with autism will remain nonverbal. And those are our latest statistics about language development from the CDC in the United States. All right, one big deciding factor that we talked about just a minute ago when we were, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, first discussing the spectrum and that cognitive skills can really, really vary. And again, what is cognition? How do you explain that to parents? I say it's how children learn. It's how they plan. It's how they remember. It's how they organize. And again, sometimes parents think about it with how smart they are. And so if a parent is really struggling with uh, trying to understand that, that's certainly something that um, an, an example that they may relate to. But again, one deciding factor in if a child is going to remain or, or be more likely to learn to talk is certainly cognition. And so when we have children with uh, intellectual disabilities who are also on the autism spectrum, we know that those kids are more likely to remain nonverbal. Now, is that to say that a child who is intellectually gifted and who is also diagnosed with autism uh, is, is always going to talk? No, unfortunately not. But again, the cognitive piece is something that, that we don't talk about often enough with parents and that as therapists, sometimes we don't pay enough attention to. Let's talk about these cognitive statistics, though, since I brought it up. Nearly half of all children, that's 46 percent with autism have average or above average intelligence. And so uh, that's certainly something, again, that plays in a child's favor when we're looking at how can we uh, teach them how to communicate? How can we push for verbal communication? And less than one third of all children with an autism diagnosis will have intellectual disabilities. And so again, those are the kids who may be less likely to talk. All right, let's take a super, super fast look right now at some markers for autism that we as uh, speech language pathologists and other early intervention professionals can look for even in those earliest sessions. And again, this is one of the first steps in reliably identifying autism is, is having yourself some screening markers that you can use in your everyday practice. Now, I've done a a couple of different shows about this. The latest one is course number 430, and I'll link it here below. And so this will give you lots of information about these markers, but let's just walk through these seven markers that you as a therapist who practices in early intervention or 
or preschool populations, you should own this information so that you are able to, again, recognize these markers for autism so that you'll, again, this is in our, in our quest for helping provide the best information for parents. So difficulties with eye contact and eye gaze. So that's maintaining attention to faces. Does a child look at your face when he or she is, uh, when you're talking with them or playing with them? Children who have difficulty making eye, eye contact and maintaining eye contact, difficulty maintaining attention to faces, difficulty with eye gaze, that would be following your point. And so this, again, is where we start to really think about joint attention, which we're going to talk about a lot in today's show as we start to look at how we diagnose autism and what those, uh, again, those characteristics are according to that official diagnostic criteria. So children who have difficulty with joint attention, that's staying with you and paying attention to the things that you're talking to them about. Uh, so that, that would be our first marker. The second one is a child who doesn't respond to his or her name. Now, we know that typically developing infants start to really recognize their names between four months and six months, and we know that by one year of age, that's kind of the outlier for when a child with uh, conceivably normal development would start responding uh, to his or her name. So if we have a child who's beyond that first birthday, uh, that's a marker for autism, and that's certainly something that we should investigate, particularly if there's a whole constellation of these markers that we're running through. So sometimes uh, I'll get an email from a parent who's watched a, sh uh, a podcast here on YouTube or They've read some information on my website at Teach Me to Talk, and they'll say, my child only has four, maybe five of those markers for autism, so I'm not worried that you reviewed in this show, so I'm not worried about that anymore. Please, please understand when I'm saying that a child doesn't have to have all seven of these markers to get or, or to need to be evaluated for autism. These, these are things that are just screening indicators. And again, not every kid with autism, because it's a spectrum, will have all of these difficulties. So if a child, if you're reading through this list or listening to this podcast now and you're thinking there's only one or two, okay, that's great. That's when you would go, okay, this is probably speech delay or this is probably something else. But if you have a child that, again, three, four, five, five, six, all seven of these markers, it is critical that we start to uh, move through that process. Even if they're not getting that evalu uh, that formal evaluation for autism, that we start to think this is likely the reason that this child is having difficulty acquiring developmental skills. And so, again, I wanted to just mention that and caution you with that. So the second uh, marker here was doesn't respond to their names. Third one, pointing to, doesn't point to or show objects of interest. And so this kind of, I think about this skill in tandem with the first skill so that a child isn't directing his eye gaze when you're saying, look, or, or look at this, let me show you something. He's likely not to be able to start to do those things as well. So when we see a child who's not pointing, that's difficulty with nonverbal uh, communication, and that is a core deficit for children with autism. And then children who aren't showing you things, who aren't trying to get your attention and like wanting you to look at what they are trying to show you and really, again, share that, uh, that experience with you. So that's a real marker for autism, autism as well. The next one is lack of pretend play. Now, lots of kids with autism do have pretty good play skills with their constructive toys. So like Legos or blocks, or maybe they, they have toys like trains, but when you really analyze it, they're not doing a lot of pretend play with that. They're doing a lot of what we call self-stimulatory play. We'll talk about that later as we get into uh, the diagnostic criteria and what that is. But children with autism often don't think symbolically yet. 
and so there and certainly don't communicate symbolically and and that's with by using words and by using gestures and so that pretend play they're going to have difficulty with that abstract pretend play too pretending something is there when it's not or pretending again a, a classic example of pretend play for a two-year-old would be a child who sets up several dolls or characters and has a little tea party for lack of a better word and you might not think about it as a tea party and as a toddler it won't look like he or she's pouring tea from a teapot but certainly he or she would be uh, pretending to feed a baby doll pretending to give a baby doll a drink uh, and then again they could do it with a sequence of baby dolls or maybe just one doll maybe they feed the doll and then uh, wash the baby off you know give the baby a little bath or maybe they pretend to make the baby go to sleep or maybe they put the baby doll in the stroller and pretend that they're going to the store and so again that lack of pretend play is a real indicator that we need uh, to look more closely uh, for autism. The next one is imitation. Imitation is how children learn everything and certainly how they learn how to talk and children who are not good verbal imitators are not good verbal communicators and so imitating comes first and we'll talk a little bit about the neurology of that and let's just say in autism uh, the theory is the mirror neurons that cause or that that facilitate a baby who's uh, typically developing to be able to watch his mom and then do what his mom does. That starts in infancy, even with holding the bottle uh, or uh, learning how to play with early toys, learning how to hold the spoon and put the spoon in their mouth. So all of the skills, and, and even, even, even as older children, when they learn how to write or learn how to swim, or as a teenager who's learning how to drive, you watch someone else learn how to drive and then you copy that. So imitation is so important. And again, a critical piece with helping a child learn how to talk. And so when we don't see a child who's learning to watch his parents and imitate what they do non-verbally, copy little housework activities, or, or again, just anything. Maybe pretend that the remote control is a cell phone because he's seen his parents talk on their phone. And those kinds of things are so important. And, and a lack of imitative ability is a marker for autism. Number six here is children who have difficulty with non-verbal communication. And we've mentioned that already. So children who don't always understand and use gestures. So maybe they're late to wave bye-bye around a year or late to learn how to point, again, to indicate to other uh, people what their wants and needs are, particularly when they're not talking in. So children who struggle with those gestures also uh, are uh, more likely to receive an autism diagnosis. And then the last one would be language development difficulties or differences. So we've already said only 70% of uh, children with autism will have a language disorder. And again, as a speech-language pathologist, you might have thought that it was a little more common than that, that, that nearly all kids with autism will struggle with language development, and that's, that's not true. <laughs> and so we need to really uh, uh, look at that, too, and, and know that that's, uh, those language development differences don't always mean that there's a delay, or that, uh, again, that every, every kid with autism won't have to have all seven of these. A really unusual language development difference that uh, we'll see sometimes with toddlers and preschoolers are children who are talking but not communicating and not understanding language at a level that you would think they are based on what they can say. And so this would be, include children with echolalia, so children who can quote a long scene from a movie or maybe quote an entire book that they really, really like for uh, their parents to read to them. Those kinds of children, again, are talking at a level that, that 
exceeds what they understand. So maybe that same child can say all these wonderful things but can't follow directions. Another really common developmental difference that we see in toddlers and preschoolers with autism are children who are talking at a level, so expressively, they're at a level that's higher than their receptive language scores. And so this might include a child with echolalia, so a child who repeats an entire book that he or she likes to hear. It might be a kid who can sing, you know, 10 different songs, but then have a hard time following directions. So these are the kids that really struggle when mom says something like, hey, go get your shoes. And because that child can talk and it's really, really verbal, they may count to 100. They may sing happy birthday in four languages. Yes, I've seen that on my caseload. <laughs> but have significant difficulty following directions. And so why is that important? Why is that important? Why is that different than what we expect? Because in typically developing toddlers, they always understand a lot more than they can say. And so when we see a child who says more than they can understand, we know that there's a big difference there. That's not how it typically develops. So that would be another marker for autism there. So again, a language development difference, meaning just not what we expect to see. So you can get more information about those seven markers uh, in my course, number 430, and I will link uh, that uh, below so that you can get that information. All right, so when we see those things in toddlers, so seven things that we just talked about, and again, you do not have to see all seven, just when we start to see, oh my goodness, this child has three or four of these things, I'm starting to get concerned. We should start to talk about these concerns with parents and certainly refer for further evaluation. Now, what do we do if a parent doesn't want a diagnosis? That's okay too. As long as we are moving forward with what uh, we know to be the best practice for treating the kinds of issues that we'll see in a child who would get a diagnosis, even if his parents aren't quite on board for evaluation. Some parents just emotionally aren't at that, that process yet. And here's the thing. They're going to have their child forever. So in early intervention, and that problem's not going away. <laughs> so in early intervention, we do not have to have these wars with parents where they are just not development or emotionally ready for that kind of information. As long as they have their child in therapy, that's okay. Now, does that mean that we should never say, hey, I'm really concerned that this is more than late talking. This is more than a language delay. Of course, we should have those conversations with parents. And of course, we should make those formal uh, referrals for evaluation because we know that best practice for an autism uh, evaluation uh, is to really rule it out or formally diagnosis is a team evaluation and that's a consensus of opinion and usually there's a physician so a developmental pediatrician or a, a, a physician who is quite skilled in recognizing developmental differences and then other uh, rehab a team or therapy team kind of members. You think about PT, OT, and speech. You certainly may have a social worker as a part of that team or another, a child psychologist. So just a consensus of opinion from professionals who specialize in early development and diagnosing autism. All right, so again, we've kind of talked about 
uh, the, the early kinds of things, the screening things, and what we should do with that information. Now let's move on to what I think is so important for you as an early intervention professional is to really, really walk through the official diagnostic criteria for autism. And you shouldn't just do that once in your career. You should do that several times so that, again, you know what this professional terminology is and so that you're able to really talk about this with parents and really share the most uh, accurate information. And so well, also when we're explaining autism to ourselves and to parents and to other team members, we have to dissect the language of the criteria to be sure that everyone understands exactly what we're talking about. So again, to help you with these things, I've written uh, my tool, What is Autism? Discussing the Initial Diagnosis with Parents. I've taken the, uh, the bullet points from the official diagnostic criteria and just written in everyday language. And so I want you to have access to both of these tools. And again, you get that with purchase of CE credit for the show today or with just the handout purchase. All right, so let's take a look at um, the tool first so that I can explain. I think it, it's a little more clearly explained than looking at the official diagnostic criteria here. But there are two sections when we are looking at the criteria for autism. Section A, social communication difficulties. This is how a child interacts and communicates. And remember what we said at the beginning that autism affects what? How a child what? Interacts communicates and behaves. So this is part of our triad. And so we get this in section A and then in section B. It's restricted interest in behaviors. This is the third uh, piece of our uh, working definition for autism there. And so we'll be talking about section B in the next show in, 40, in, sec, in uh, show 438. But in this course, 437, we're just going to be looking at social communication difficulties. All right, so at the bottom of the tool, and again, we'll put this up on the screen. You'll also see the severity levels. And these line up with mild, moderate, and severe. But the uh, researchers, the, the professionals, the experts who revised the autism uh, diagnostic criteria uh, felt that using these severity levels would clarify and not make it quite as subjective for examiners and of. Uh, professionals who are participating in the evaluation process. And so level one, if you'll take a look at your handout right now, is requiring support. And so this is really what we might think about as a child who has milder, a milder diagnosis or milder impact. So without supports in place, there are noticeable impairments, RRBs, and again, these are in section B that we'll talk about in next show, but restricted repetitive behaviors cause significant issues in one or more context. And a child would resist attempts by others to interrupt or redirect his RRB, but it's the mildest rating there. Uh, severity level number two is requiring substantial support. So we've moved up from support to substan substantial support. So these are children who are going to be uh, more like a moderate diagnosis. So marked deficits noted even with supports in place. So even with a very skilled parent there redirecting or a parent there to uh, help a child or assist a child to really compensate for some of the things that a child is having difficulty with, it still would be uh, noticeable. There's still things that a child is struggling with even with a really uh, skilled person who's there helping him, uh, again, with whatever context they're in. So the RRBs, 
preoccupations or fixated interests appear frequently enough to be obvious to the casual observer and interfere in a variety of contexts. So this would be a moderate rating. And then level three, requiring very substantial support. So these are our little friends that have severe impairments, and these would be our friends too. It says including minimal response to social overtures from others. So our little guys that it's just so hard for us to get their attention. And so we, we have to work super, super hard to get and keep them engaged with us. So that's what we're talking about here. Preoccupations, fixed rituals, and or repetitive behaviors markedly interfere with functioning in all spheres. A child shows marked distress when his rituals or, or routines are disrupted. So severe ratings. So take a look at that information if you're a therapist so that you're understanding when you're working with a child on your caseload who's already gotten an autism diagnosis and you'll understand what those levels are. And you'll be able to talk with moms and dads and support them as they are uh, working through all of the initial things that happen uh, when a child uh, officially gets an autism diagnosis. For some children, again, that's later. You may, you may, uh, a child may outgrow you and move on to another program uh, before a parent might decide to get an, an evaluation. Or sometimes uh, it takes a long, long time to be evaluated. The delay might be a year or so. And so again, these would be things that, that you're going to want to know and by familiarizing yourself with the diagnostic criteria, you're going to be able to share better information with parents and then just make better professional decisions on your own. All right, so let's talk about something else with the official diagnostic criteria. We have the two sections, section A and section B. And again, with my tool that's here on the screen, you can see that clearly delineated. So there are some diagnostic differences here in as far as uh, what a the threshold for scoring. So. In Section A with social communication difficulties, in order to receive an official diagnosis of autism, a child has to show difficulty in all three of those areas. In Section B, dealing with restricted and repetitive interest in behaviors, just two out of the four. And so that's important for you as a professional to know. And so what do we do with kids who don't have all three of those difficulties in Section A? They don't have autism. They're probably still on your caseload. They still would have some difficulties with acquiring language, but autism is not the best descriptor there. And again, will a parent just go, no, autism, great, great. We're done with all this therapy stuff. He's going to be fine. No, there's probably another diagnosis that would more uh, accurately describe what's going on with the child's difficulties acquiring language. So you have to help a parent get there as well. So when I'm talking about section A here with parents, the social communication section, here's how I, I talk about it. I say that a child with autism consistently has difficulty communicating with and interacting with different people and in different settings. And again, why is that important? This isn't just he doesn't talk at daycare. This isn't just he's perfect at home. Everything is fantastic at home. There are no issues at all. It's only when he goes to school. And so Again, we have to talk with parents about that, and, and we're going to tease that out as we uh, keep on moving through this diagnostic criteria. But before we move on, if you are new to the channel, and we have a lot of new subscribers, I just want to thank you for being here. And if you haven't done it already, please subscribe to our channel. If you're a regular, I want to thank you for being here too. And again, people are always asking me how you can support or how they can support our work at Teach Me to Talk. The link for buying the handout is a wonderful way to be able to do that because you're 
supporting us, but you're also receiving something uh, for that for, for your uh, kindness there. And so please take a look at doing that. All right, so let's move on to look at exactly what would be included in section A uh, with this diagnostic criteria. So we are beginning with defining social communication. And so I think it is helpful to really define this terminology as we talked about before to make sure that we're all on the same page. So what is social communication? Social communication is how we communicate with other people, not how we name flashcards or or identify pictures in a book or whatever a parent might be thinking about communicating. A lot of times parents really assume that when a child is talking that that's what we mean by communication and really that social piece is so so important because it always takes two people to communicate. So even if a child is talking he or she is not necessarily communicating and so we have to really really help parents understand that. And again the social communication piece is how well not only how well a child talks but how well he interacts with other people. Is he a self-isolator? Does he tend to do his own thing? And so again, even if a child is having a, you know, a, a monologue, if he's not directing that to someone else, that's not social communication. And so that's the piece that lots of our little friends with autism really, really struggle with. And so this means, being social means that a child includes other people in his or her activities. He actually prefers to be with other people rather than uh, on his or her own. And so uh, the Hannon people call this following his own agenda. And so that's what we see a lot of times with children with autism who are talking, they're not really communicating. And so we have to make that distinction with parents. And let's go ahead and talk about communicating. A lot of times when parents think about communicating, they naturally think about that expressive language piece, which is what? talking. <laughs> Again, our speech therapist bread and butter here, what we do, the talking piece. But until a child is able to talk, or, or before a child is able to talk, what, what is his relationship with language? He has to be able to understand what's said to him. So this would be receptive language. And sometimes parents come to us only focused on the expressive language piece. And so we have to really talk about receptive language differences. Not all children will have difficulty processing and understanding language, all children who will be diagnosed with autism, but lots of them do. And so we, again, we have to help parents make that distinction and understand. And we have to really get that relationship right we have to know that we can't uh, depend on that expressive language piece because also we talked about uh, back when we were talking about those markers for autism that uh, sometimes children with autism, their expressive language scores actually exceed their receptive language scores. And so we have to really help parents understand how important that receptive language piece. Communication also includes another very important piece of communicating, which is nonverbal communication. So this is how we understand and use gestures. And again, we're going to be talking about this throughout this section of the course because that's one of the diagnostic criteria for autism is difficulty acquiring nonverbal communication. And why are gestures so important for developing communication anyway? And as a speech language pathologist, you should know this. And this is something you should be talking about with parents all the time. Gestures are important because they precede words. So just after a child begins to wave bye-bye and clap and shake his head no and point to show you things and do, and again, not only do those things 
first receptively, like understand that mom is pointing and I'm going to look over there, understand when, you know, mom's facial expressions, oh, I'm about to be in trouble. She looks really mad. Babies understand that. They start, and we're going to walk through the typical social emotional development in just a minute, but they, they understand those kinds of things. And kids with autism, they understand the gestures, then they start to use the gestures, and then... Uh, again, this would be all kids, whether they uh, typically developing children with language differences, language, even a disorder like autism. Then after gestures just, uh, start to appear and they use them purposefully and meaningfully, just after that, words come in. And so they really precede words in typical development. And again, that's what we're working for in our little guys who aren't developing typically. All right, our third word here to define under section A is reciprocity. And why is that so important? Because it's the turn-taking piece. It's the back and forth piece. And until we have that, we don't have communication. We have, like we, like I said before, a lot of our little friends with echolalia will use echolalia meaningfully to communicate so we can't pigeonhole it and say it's never communicative but a lot of times it's just a monologue they're just they're doing their own thing when they're quoting their their movie scene or whatever it is that they've lifted from uh, even maybe a video that they like to watch. And so until we have that back and forth piece, it's not really communicating. So let's go ahead and look at what I said we were going to do with our uh, social emotional development in babies and look at that because we're going to start to see some differences in reciprocity in our little friends, even at this age, even before they're talking we can look at their social emotional development with this. So uh, these are things that would happen around a child's first birthday. So is he looking or before, around and before, and the, the first birthday is kind of the latest we would want to see this in a child that we, uh, we know to be typically developing. So looks at a person calling his or her name. Uh, looks at the person who's talking to him just in conversation, tries to get another person's attention. So they are initiating. They're not just responding. They're, they're beginning that initiation piece. Shows another person the things that he or she likes or wants. Consistently pays attention to his parents as well as other people when they talk to him. And again, this is by the first birthday. Uh, as I've already said several times now, responds to their own names very, very consistently. Enjoys social games like peekaboo or like patty cake, and then begins to copy the actions in those games. So, if a parent's played patty cake with a child, they start to play patty cake uh, with parents too. When they hear the song begin, they start to do it. They understand the game of peekaboo. They understand that they're supposed to take the blanket off their heads and again and look at the person who's playing with them and laugh and share and enjoy that game together. That's the reciprocity piece, and that's often something that we see weakened or sometimes even absent, especially in our little friends who get that level three uh, severity rating. So after, um, again, we define those words for parents and kind of talk about what those mean. And when I'm doing that, one of the things that I also like to do with a family is talk about, even, even as we're saying that with uh, talking about uh, reciprocity with, you know, that's something I see, I, I talk about their child specifically, that's something I see him really struggling with. Even when he likes something, he doesn't always really look up at me when we're playing with it together. Or I don't I don't really see making a lot, a lot of eye contact with me. And that's a real important piece here in social communication. And so again, making those really not 
not beat them over the head observations, but just the behavioral observations that you've seen so that a parent understands that you are making this connection with, with things that their child is doing in therapy week after week. All right, so then after we kind of talk about those general terms, we take a look at the specific three sections in point A. So let's just take a look at that now. Go ahead and look at your screen. I've put the tool back on the screen. So this would be problems with social initiation and response. And so that means difficulty interacting with and communicating with others. Remember what we said, our two, two of our three big pieces, interacting, communicating, and behaving. So problems, again, with the initiation and responding piece. It's not, not you know, there are problems with either piece of those. Number two, and we're going to delineate what those are. So let's just review these three areas, and I'll stop talking about them. Let's review the three areas, and then we'll get into the specifics. So problems with nonverbal communication. So that would be understanding and using gestures, and again, the other nonverbal communication, like reading somebody's facial expressions or using a lot of eye, eye contact. And again, we talked about those problems. And then the third one, problems with social awareness and building relationships with others. And again, we talked about the communication piece that it takes two people to communicate. And so how is that child not only with, us, with us getting those social interactions going, but how does he keep them going? How does he start to make uh, friends when he starts to go to daycare or preschool or any of those early little social opportunities with same age peers? All right, so those were the three big problems under section A, under social communication. So let's look more closely at those points. And so to do this, let's start by taking a look at that official diagnostic criteria. And again, you can get that as part of your handout package today, but we'll go ahead and put it on the screen so you can see it here while I read it. So this is the first one, first point that we're going to dive into and really analyze. So deficits in social emotional reciprocity ranging, for example, from abnormal social approach and failure of normal back and forth conversation to reduced sharing of interest, emotions, or affect to failure to initiate or respond to social interactions. And so on your handout, I've just worded this as problems initiating and responding to others. Let me say one more thing about the diagnostic criteria before we take it down. You'll see a range there and they it looks like it's really matched with those severity levels so that you'll see an example of something that would be just require support and then requiring more support and then requiring very substantial support for our children who get that level three rating. So you're gonna see some examples here and it so uh, helps a parent and you as a professional understand again that autism is a spectrum so we won't always see the most severe rating in every child it could just be something more more subtle like we're going to talk about in some of these examples and so again so what do we mean here it means children who have difficulty initiating and responding to others and so let's look on your handout so go, we'll go ahead and put that on the screen now so take a look at the handout that we posted here on the screen and let's look at these examples with initiating and responding those difficulties that we see in toddlers and preschoolers who will go on to be diagnosed with autism. The first one is limited sharing, warm, joyful expressions or a flat or reduced affect. So these are our kids that Again, look may look very somber, very flat. You may have to work pretty hard to get a social response like a smile or a warm expression. Does that mean that they never smile? 
No. <laughs> Does that mean that every child with autism is flat most of the time? Absolutely not. This is just one of the possibilities or one of the examples that we could see with social interaction differences here. And so we have to, again, be sure that we uh, look at this as it may be reduced in a child or it may be completely absent. But one of the things, uh, again, their, their facial expressions, how they connect with you, how they respond to you. Now, again, here it talks about sharing it. And so sometimes our little guys with autism, again, may be in, when they are uh, just quoting their favorite movie, when they are Buzz Lightyear and saying to infinity and beyond and jumping off the couch 50 times, they may be smiling and really into that. But there's no real, real connection to you with that. They're not necessarily even looking for your reaction or wanting to notice that you're in the room even watching them. And so again, does that mean that on the 30th time that you finally... Uh, don't get their attention and then they smile at you and you say, oh no, he's fine. No, you've got to look at the totality of that. And so it might be just reduced sharing of those expressions with you, not completely absent. So I want to make sure I make that point. All right, the next one is abnormal social approach or interaction. So this may include unusual social interactions. It might be inappropriate physical contact with others. It might be, let's talk about both of these. Let's, let's talk about this one first inappropriate physical contact with others. This I've had some uh, really specific examples. And if you've worked for a while in early intervention or in a pediatric speech therapy or another uh, therapy field, you've probably seen abnormal social contact. This would be kids who uh, may be obsessed with your fingernail polish. And so they want to chew your fingers or really stay obsessed with your fingernail polish there, really looking at it, you know, holding it up to their little faces. I had a little boy one time who was obsessed with my toenail polish so I could never take off my shoes <laughs> I had to wear socks when I worked with him otherwise we couldn't get anything else done that was abnormal social approach I worked with a little guy last year who was really uh, obsessed with my belly button and so that was abnormal and and not just me with other people too for him to really approach and want to see their stomachs and that can be uncomfortable for a stranger certainly someone who doesn't even know that child and so those are the kinds of things we look at, the, at with that that abnormal social approach the other example there's just a classic example here for toddlers with autism would be using another person's hand as a tool so this would be a child who you're playing with a toy and it's, let's just say it's a push uh, just a push toy and instead of him that he's fully capable of reaching over and pushing the toy himself but what does he do he grabs your hand and pushes the toy or a child who again not in the baby stage not around you know six to twelve months where they're learning how to clap but a two-year-old who instead of clapping his own hands reaches over to clap your hands or a child who leads you to the refrigerator to get her something to drink and that's maybe her only gesture and I am not knocking that that is a wonderful skill that she knows hey I can't go get that other person and they can make life easier for me I mean that is certainly the beginning of communication but when that child's that's the only thing she can do and we'll kind of talk about that a little we'll talk about that a little later but when that's her only gesture you know again that's an abnormal social approach because even though we we do want children to use gestures we do want them to uh, again compensate for their lack of words and their lack of being able to make you understand what they want by using gestures 
but when it's their exclusive gesture and when you get she gets you in there uh, to the kitchen and she puts your hand on the refrigerator door to do that again that's a little different typically developing toddlers may do that for a little while but they don't stay there and so that's certainly something that we uh, notice and that's how we talk about this with that that's how we define it when we're uh, talking with parents and how we certainly are writing reports with that and so think about those things and uh, certainly that's something you can talk about the next one is reduced sharing of interest enjoyment and emotions so these would be when kids look like they're doing their own thing it's super hard to get their attention this is why they don't always respond to their own names because again they've got that reduced sharing or reduced reciprocity uh, sometimes kids can be totally into playing with a toy and the problem uh, again a kid with autism doesn't really start until you try to join that and so you may see him just completely ignore you or it may be even a little more physically um, obvious he may turn away from you he may completely cover so that he's you know physically blocking you from participating in his play or his contact with him. Uh, so it, it may again be like we talked about before, the child who is happily doing their own thing, jumping off the couch 35 times saying to infinity and beyond, to infinity and beyond, to infinity and beyond. But again, never really seek out the other people that are in the room, even with eye contact to make sure that you are looking at him. And so we talked about this before. Therapists refer to this as a lack of joint attention and it is a core deficit of autism. It's one of the main reasons too that children do not learn language as expected. And why is that? It's because typically developing babies and children, uh, again, this all children, let me just say, this is how children learn language, whether you are typically developing or not. When a parent is showing you something, they learn how to direct their visual attention to what the parent is talking about and they link meaning with that. So that when a parent is trying to teach the word cup and they are saying to the baby, here's your cup. You want a cup? There's the cup. And the child isn't continuing to look at what he or she is doing. He looks up. He hears the parent say cup. He looks at the cup. He, vis he redirects his visual attention. And then by doing that over and over, what happens? He links meaning So when, with that word. And he learns how to understand the word. And then what does he do? He, he learns how to say the word. He imitates it. And then he learns how to use the word, right? And so it's disrupted back at that joint attention level. And so that's why a lot of our little guys with autism uh, are later to acquire language because they lack that initial piece or that initial ability to stop what they are doing and to redirect their attention to what you are talking about and to share that experience with you and so that's why joint attention is so 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 important when a child isn't watching he's uh, a lot of times not linking meaning now let me just say eye contact is so difficult for a lot of our little friends with autism and how do we know this because adults with autism tell us how uncomfortable it's been and how it really is almost painful for them and so we don't necessarily demand eye contact when we are demanding or requiring that a child listen to us because that they may not be able to look and listen at the same time so that's something that we need uh, to think about as well all right our last point here under problems initiating and responding to others is poor social imitation and interaction now we've talked about this 
uh, as how important imitation is and how everything that we do verbally with the word actually begins non-verbally. So kids learn to imitate words by actually learning to imitate actions first. And I've done a whole podcast series of uh, the beginning of this year and released that with how uh, children, again, learn how to talk by learning how to imitate. And when we have late talkers who aren't imitating, that's the core skill we need to address. Same thing here with autism. When we have a child who's not imitating, that's the piece that we have to get established and get going before we can hear them begin to to use, uh, certainly uh, imitate words or copy words, and then certainly before we can get them to begin to use words. And so that's what we talked about. Uh, That's what we talked about too. We also mentioned the mirror neurons. Remember when I mentioned those earlier back in the markers for autism? That's why imitation is theorized to be disrupted. The children don't have that, that that part of their brains is different that they naturally want to watch other people. They naturally want to engage with other people. And so again, that's a neurological difference there, a genetic difference with autism. The last example with poor social interaction, and we've talked about this a lot, but I want to be sure you know it, so common with children with autism not responding to their names. So this is my first screening indicator. So if the first few minutes that I'm doing an assessment with the child and I'm calling his name and then mom calls his name and by the fourth or fifth time he's not looking up, I immediately start thinking, is this child, let me look at some other markers here. Are there things that might make me lean toward autism for this child? So such an important marker. So let's move on now and take a look at our first video clip of the course and of the series. And here we're going to be talking about and discussing and analyzing how children seem to tune out other people, children who have autism. So I first met this little boy when he was two and just a consult for me. He had another team of therapists and his mom just wanted a different or another opinion. And so I met with them and I shared the team's concerns that this child should be referred for an autism evaluation. Fast forward, I didn't see him for therapy. Fast forward a year, that's when he got his autism diagnosis. Mom called me back. And so this is my first assessment with their family uh, in this child's home. I want to show you this clip. I'm talking to the mom here, so he's not interacting with me. But watch how he is with the student that I have with me. And look look at that difference in uh, initiating and responding to others. Lots of times parents describe this as avoiding or ignoring. So take a look at this. Whiteboard with markers, but she could get him to do about three or four lines, maybe a circle, and then he's gone. Well, that's why we're going to pair it with really ABA-like motivation and training kinds of things. And for that, you have to, you don't make your kid do it. You have to give him a reason to want to do it. Okay. And TV is going to be his best thing. Do you have a portable um, DVD thing? Because it works better with that. I have one. Let me see if I can dig it out. We can't find it. We're just going to use this. But I'm just telling you this part is from a traditional strip. Yeah. Because then we can be in complete control. Yeah. And it's right there. And he has a reason to sit right there. Little ones that we use for car trips. Um, yeah, and we can and we can do it with a laptop or okay. something else oh, too. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
But something that we can control okay. and that he really doesn't have access to any time other than therapy time to. Okay. So his very favorite movie, if it's this, put it up. <laughs> sure. And then we're only going to use it for therapy time too. Okay. Because a little deprivation there yes, increases craving. Yeah. And the other thing that we might do too is is are Oreos his very favorite snack? Um or all of that kind of stuff. Marshmallows. Ooh. Marshmallows. Okay. Um on the day of therapy, maybe even the afternoon before, let's not give him any of those. Oh, yeah. So no, that's we totally yeah. kind of create that sure. reason for him, like, oh, my God, I haven't seen that in a right. year. Right. So that's something that we'll try to do. Sure. Or a couple of those things, the Oreos and the marshmallows. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. yeah, and if you're okay with that, and if you won't, just have no caloric intake without that. Right. <laughs> no, no, no. Some kids, you can't withhold because mom's no. like, this is only food. No. You're not taking that away from me. No, no, no. There's definitely those things that I mentioned. We can hold, yeah, we hold those and he can eat other things. Okay, because if we create enough desire to, that's yeah, actual so motivation. Help. Sure. So how did he respond to her? He ignored her, right? And so, again, he's not just being shy, right? A lot of times parents will say, well, he doesn't know you yet. He's got to warm up. No, that wasn't it. That wasn't shyness. Shyness, children are usually kind of coward and over with their parents and really turning away from you, even wanting to, making eye contact, but then avoiding and making and then avoiding. So that wasn't just shy. Sometimes parents will say, well, he's just being stubborn. He just won't listen to her because he's do, he just is his own boss and he doesn't listen to anybody. He's just like every man in our family, you know, whatever, right? That's not it. It's not that he's just being stubborn or he's not listening. It's, it's a difference. It's a, it's a difference in how he communicates and interacts with other people. So that's a neuro neurological difference, and that's what we have to talk with parents about. Let's talk about some more subtle examples that I think that you may recognize from your own experiences. This might be a child who is playing with you with a toy and he loves the toy. Let's say it's a jack-in-the-box and you keep uh, pushing the jack-in-the-box down, closing the lid, pushing the button, starting over. The child is enthralled. He is squealing in delight, but he never looks up at you in that whole process. His attention is just right there on the toy. And even though mom, delightful mom, is sitting beside him narrating everything and saying, Wow! Ooh! It's so great! You're having so much fun! Look at that! And she is doing everything, and she is just as happy and as excited about his response as he is. But... He never looks up at mom. And so those would be the kinds of things that we see. And sometimes we miss that. A parent will think there's joint attention there because she's talking about what the child is focused on, not that they're actually sharing that experience together. Another example might be a child who really, really wants a snack. And you've got, you know, you're trying to offer, you want a cookie or you want a cracker. They do not understand that they should be making a choice there, but they are totally fixated on just looking at the snack and again no real inclusion of you no real understanding they might come and try to rip the snack out of your hand versus looking at you and understanding that they need to request that or they need to do something even even just with the eye contact piece so those are really really important things for us to look at 
All right, so to summarize point A, number one, social-emotional reciprocity, let's reword this in easy-to-understand everyday language for parents. We would say that a child with autism has problems sharing attention and developing normal back-and-forth interaction with others. All right, let's move back to our criteria and look under point A. We're going to put that official criteria back on the screen so that you can see that while I read this definition. So, what are problems with nonverbal communication? Deficits in nonverbal communicative behaviors used for social interaction ranging, for example, from poorly integrated verbal and nonverbal communication to abnormalities in eye contact and body language or deficits in understanding and using gestures to a lack, total lack of facial expressions and nonverbal communication. So again, you can see that we uh, have that whole range here of how kids can look with autism from the, it's a more subtle uh, difficulty to the total lack of understanding and using nonverbal communication. So again, what do we mean by nonverbal communication here? Uh, let's take a look at this normal progression of skills. And so let's do it just like we did for the social emotional section here with nonverbal communication development because I want you to see how this develops gradually over time. And again, it's developing in that baby's first year. So at about eight weeks of old, the ba baby begins to smile at you. When you smile at her, you start to get those first little warm, uh, joyful reactions there. Now, as that baby learns and grows over the next few months, what does she do with that? She begins to really use her eye contact purposefully so that she can watch you as you move throughout your home so you'll see her just watching you there she prefers to be with you so then she learns how to get your attention so that she'll you will include her and she to do that she doesn't start with sounds or she might but she also learns to use her body movements and her facial expressions you know again in addition to those vocalizations like whining or crying at about 10 or 11 months old she develops that joint attention piece where she starts to look when you are pointing and because she has watched you point for several months now by about a year old by the time of her first birthday she starts to point to get you to look at things and so again she's learned that skill non-verbally and then she generalizes it and it becomes well let's say expressively because she's not talking yet but she expressive language wise she uses that point to redirect your attention at that at that point and again Typical nonverbal communication development, by 15 months, she has gotten so skilled at looking at you and she knows to look at you, she starts to be able to read those facial expressions. And the most common example is a child who, let's say that there's a flower pot there and she knows she's not supposed to dig into the flower pot, but she walks over to the flower pot and what does she do before she begins to dig in it? She looks at you. She wants to see your facial expression to see if she's about to be in trouble, if you're about to tell her no or move her away. And so that would be typical nonverbal uh, communication development. Again, we've already talked about why gestures are so important. In typical language development, it's because they they come just before real words emerge. And again, that lets us know that a child has become symbolic. He knows that this means I'm either one of us is leaving or one of us has just joined the conversation. He's waving there to greet or to close. And then we'll see those words start to emerge for that uh, after that with a child beginning to say bye-bye if he waves. So that that's become his symbol. The, the first symbol there was the gestural 
movement or the body movement, that means by. And then the word is even more symbolic. He starts to say something that replaces that. So uh, really, really important for language development. It's a red flag, and a lot of people don't like that word, but it's the truth. It is, it is a marker that something is going on with the child's language development if we do not see gestures begin to emerge by 12 months. We can expect that that child will likely have a language delay, especially if there are no uh, motor issues that would prevent a child from using gestures. Uh, let me direct you to a leading researcher in this area is Dr. Amy Weatherby at Florida State University. She's got a great project called the First Words Project with fantastic resources for professionals and parents. And her big marker is 16 gestures by 16 months. So that's certainly something that you as a speech language pathologist or an early intervention professional should be using as part of your uh, screening information with parents and then also as maybe one of your first targets in therapy which we'll talk about a little later. Alright, so what are some specific problems with nonverbal communication in young children with autism? And so let's put my tool back on so that you can take a look at this and we'll walk through this list. So we've already said problems with eye contact and eye gaze, problems with using and understanding body language, gestures and facial expressions. And again, this would be that difficulty with joint attention. They're not following your point. They don't get it when you're mad. They're not, they're not realizing that, you know, they're not reading those nonverbal things that other children who do not have autism, even children with speech delay, will recognize nonverbal communication and, and even use it better than our little friends with autism. Problems learning to use the gestures we've already talked about. And then this last one, which is a little more subtle. Problems understanding how to control the volume, pitch, intonation, rate, or rhythm of speech. And so we'll see this a lot. And I haven't said this already, but in the clips that I'm going to show you throughout this whole series, Beginning Speech Therapy with Autistic Children, I don't want to just show you the most obvious examples. Now, I showed you that with our little friend before with the ignoring, but I want to be sure that you also see clips of things that are less obvious. And so this is what's going on with my next little friend who's a little girl with autism. She was a little friend who was denied by our state early intervention program for speech therapy because she had too many words. <laughs> and so she never even got to the evaluation process. And so her family sought me out and I was able to work with them for a long time. And uh, she's older, much older now, and she's doing great. So here's an example of problems understanding how she should use her voice. She's very verbal, but, and, and with sometimes with these kids, you don't start to notice these things until you've seen them the second session, the third session, the eighth session. But, and listen to this little girl, and you may have to go back and watch the clip a couple of times. Her prosody is always the same every time she's, she's making a request with an I want phrase there. She says, I won, and then uh, request it. And again, you might not catch that because you're so excited about a three-word phrase <laughs> that she said that you miss that that prosodic difference is there. So listen to that. And so she's another little girl, too, that she didn't just say thank you. She said, thank you, which again is adorable, and I love it. And it was pragmatically appropriate when she used it, but it's just a prosodic difference. So listen to this. <laughs> You guys want room to play too? It's a playground. Woody. That's Woody. There's Woody. I want Woody. I want Sip. You want to sip? Good. Yay. Yeah. Oh, 
Open bag. <laughs> Open bag. Open bag. I love it. Oh, oh yeah. who do you need? Who do you want? Mm. Want Woody or want Buzz? I want Woody. There's wood. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. So now let's look. look at some other common examples that parents report with nonverbal communication issues with children who go on to be diagnosed with autism. They'll they'll talk about, you know, he doesn't look at other people when they talk to him, or my baby can wave bye-bye, but he looks at his hand instead of the person that he's waving to. And again, you might see this in a younger baby, but it doesn't last very long. They, they learn how uh, to shape that wave to be directed toward another person. And it might be something like uh, a parent says, you know, he just did not get as excited or stay as interactive uh, with, with, you know, they're usually saying, he did better with you today than he normally does. And so that, again, he followed you better, he stayed with you better, he looked at you more. And so again, those might be examples of things that you're hearing. And sometimes we as therapists think that they're saying, oh, you did such a great job, you're so great with kids. But listen to the other part of that. They're saying, this is something you really had a hard time with. You saw him at his best today. He doesn't normally look that good. And so uh, be sure that you're listening for those things. So let's summarize this point with the criteria here on our handout in everyday language that parents might understand better than the professional uh, diagnostic wording here. So a child with autism has difficulty recognizing, interpreting, and using nonverbal communication. It's not just that he's not using gestures, there's that uh, receptive difficulty there too. Let's move on and look at our last point under section A, and this is problems building relationships with others. So let's go ahead and put the official diagnostic criteria back on the screen so that you can see that wording. So these would be children who have deficits in developing, maintaining, and understanding relationships, ranging, for example, from difficulties adjusting behavior to suit various social contexts. Two, difficulty sharing imaginative play or in making friends. Two, absence of interest in peers. So how do we explain this to parents? So here we're talking about how children establish and then maintain strong social bonds with other people. And a really, really important marker here is that we are looking for this uh, evidence of being able to form these connections and little friendships and relationships beyond immediate caregivers. Now this is really important for parents to understand. And, and usually they'll get this, but a lot of times parents who particularly are, are probably going to have to go through some of those stages of acceptance and maybe even have a little bit of denial. And they'll say, well, he is very interactive with me, so I just don't see all this autism stuff that everyone keeps trying to get me to talk about. I, don't, I just don't see it. And so what they usually are doing there is they're looking at how their child, the interaction and engagement in their own family, and again, that's important. We want to see that. We are even more worried about children who do not have those strong social connections with their parents and with their siblings or with their sitters that they see all the time or their their neighbors that they see all the time. We worry. We really get concerned about the kids who have difficulty uh, establishing relationships with people who, again, are very, very uh, frequently in their environment. And so you have to really talk about, no, we're also talking about 
newer people. And so we're looking at that whole spectrum here. And so they gave us the example at the beginning with the child who doesn't uh, address his or adjust his behavior in different social contexts. That would be like a kid who they have to understand. I can take my clothes off at home, but I can't take my clothes off at school. I can talk loud at home or out on the playground, but in the library at preschool, I'm not supposed to talk real loud. You know, these are kids who, again, autism is, is that it, it's at its mildest uh, manifestation here where that, that it's just that, that social context problem. The next issue, uh, again, it would be all the way through severity-wise to a toddler who has no interest in his environment. So that would be like that first little clip that I showed you where my little friend was not paying attention at all uh, to the student who was with me. So parents can report these kinds of issues too with peers, but they may like we said before, you've got to listen to what they say to understand what you should be taking away from that. So when a child, when they tell you that a child prefers to play by himself, what are they really saying? He's not, it might be interest. They might be looking at it as an interest piece or he won't play with other kids. But a lot of times it's that what? He can't play with other kids. And again, that's that, that difference built in. Another really common example here is that a child prefers objects over people so that would be like what a kid who screams bloody murder if you try to rip the ipad out of his hands to do anything so that would be a kid who's again maybe hyper focused on thomas the train he doesn't want anything to do with another child or maybe you as his therapist <laughs> when you are trying to get his attention and get him to focus on something else or let you even join that activity so those would be the kinds of examples that we're talking about here so in summary of this section a child with autism has difficulty establishing and maintaining relationships with others. And again, we want to see that beyond those immediate family members. Uh, let me also say one more thing about that. Sometimes a parent will say, it's not that he can't, it's that he has difficulty with kids his own age, but he's fine with older children. It's not that he can't interact with other people. It just has to be somebody older. Well, why is that? It's because older kids can compensate. Uh, big brothers and sisters get very skilled at doting on the baby and knowing what the younger child needs, right? Especially when there's more than three or four years a gap in their ages. The siblings that are the closest to each other probably, are, you know, may end up more being like oil and water than a child who would compensate. But at the same time, that's what we're talking about here. Adults and older kids can do things that make it easier for that child with autism to interact. And so that's what we're looking at with autism. We want to look at same age peers and again with unfamiliar people to really judge uh, their interaction piece. All right, so this brings us to the end of section A that we looked at uh, with our tool today. And I want to give you a little quiz here just verbally uh, to help you really own this information and master this information. So when we are talking with parents about autism, 
Uh, what were those three big things? How are we going to describe autism to parents? We're going to say autism affects how a child does what? How he interacts with other children, so his social engagement piece. What was next? How he communicates with other people, so his language development piece. And then what was the last one? His behavior, those behavioral challenges. And again, we'll get to that on next show. Today we talked about what those specific social communication challenges look like and those social skill issues as well. So, Let's review, too, what were the three main points under Section A that we looked at. If we say that a child has social communication difficulties, what were the three things that were really, really defining there? So he has difficulty with that initiation and response piece. So, again, that includes that difficulty interacting and communicating with others. Point number two, we said that he had difficulty understanding and using nonverbal communication, and that also included his gestures, his body language, and his eye contact. And what was the third point? Is difficulty establishing and maintaining relationships with others. So that's the social awareness to build consistent friendships. One more question here about point A, because again, I want to make sure you know this information. How many of the criteria did a child have to meet or exhibit in order for us to say that he fulfilled the requirements to get an autism diagnosis when referring to social communication difficulties? How many did he need? He needed to have difficulties in all three of those areas. All right, so whew, we made it. We made it to the end here of Section A of the official diagnostic criteria. We're going to finish this up with Section B in our next podcast. Before we go, I'm going to mention a great resource I have for you, whether you are a professional or a parent who is working with a child or children with autism. And this is exactly how I think about developing our initial treatment plans for children with autism. This will guide you through this entire process. I have questions and checklists in every chapter so that you can be really, really specific uh, in, in, in making your priorities and in deciding what you're going to work on with the child first, what's most important, how do I get started, or if you are stuck with a child with autism, you've gotten some things going, but you're just not sure where to go next. This tool will help you. And so I have the link there in the post below. We focus on so much more than talking, even in speech therapy, when we're working with a child with autism. So look below for the link for that fantastic resource. So that is all for this show. I'm so excited about this series, mostly because we get to analyze those video clips. There are a lot more video clips in show number 438, where we start to talk about restrictive and repetitive behaviors and if you find yourself really struggling to recognize some of those things take a look at that show now the kids that we i introduced you to in this course you're going to see throughout this series and you'll also get to see some really really nice progress so i'm so excited to be able to share that with you all right that's all for today i'm laura mize pediatric speech language pathologist and thank you so much for joining me for teach me to talks podcast